Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackn and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today, the April 13th DevOps Lunch and Learn was a true lunch and learn. Uh, we had 45 minutes of deep discussion and training about service meshes, how they work and why they're important. Um, this is one you may want to jump in and watch the video for because we did have slides and it will be more meaningful if you can see the slides. Um, either way, I think you'll get a lot of the conversation, especially towards the end, where we start talking about the rationale and whys and how things work. Um, so a lot of great content in this uh, Lunch and Learn. Enjoy it. One day I'm going to make John give in uh, a basic intro into service meshes. Service meshes. Oh yeah, we but... were going to talk about service meshes too. Yeah, I can do that. I would love that. Actually, that, that would be that great. Would, that would tie into the IBM Redline eventually. It will, it will tie into the well. Service meshes are not necessarily Kubernetes-esque, but um, um, it will tie into the complexity conversation. Okay. Um, all right, you want me to, um, I need to share if I'm going to do this one. Um, you got it. Let me promote you. Let me find share. You are now a co-host. Uh, all right. You should be able to see stuff now. Let me do this. Holy mackerel. This is somebody who's prepared for everything. I'm impressed. <laughs> Well, let me just do it this way. All right. Uh, all right. So this is service meshes and what we kind of do in these things. And so, yeah, the way we normally get to this is talk about why do we adopt microservices? I think everyone kind of understands it. It's the independent scalability, faster time to market, decoupling phases in software development lifecycle, right? But the, the main goal is to achieve a higher level of organizational agility, right? Um, the problem with service messages is this, and there's probably 10 different versions of this, is once you start decomposing all the applications into microservices, it becomes incredibly complex. And we have to try and figure out who and how do we actually manage this stuff. Um, and I should say, like, if you guys have questions, just interrupt, right? So uh, I have a very basic question, and I'm totally cool to be told to shut up at any point. No. Why does the DNS not solve this? Why did DNS not, DNS is like in terms of like service discovery? Well, it's like I have to get to some bit of some app. You know, well, why does the DNS not solve that problem? So DNS doesn't solve a lot of things, right? So DNS, for example, DNS is a, a very finite service. It's given a name, return an IP address, right? It doesn't have any notion of health, right? It doesn't have any notion. Oh, of I see. So when you add value to the thing, that is, is the thing alive or how do I load balance or all those things, right? Yeah, it, okay. it, it's, a, it's, it's, really about, it's really about operationally managing applications, it's not about just performing a simple name resolution, right? And it's, it's value added. So it's not how do I find a particular microservice, it's how to yeah. make the application run with all the communication services that it might need. Yeah, and I'll give you, there's, there's some concrete examples. Oh, yeah. right. I love this graph, by the way. This, this is the Netflix uh, service graph, right? 
There's lots of different renditions of this one. This might be the Netflix. I think the Netflix one reminds me more of a brain. It, it's even more dense than this, <laughs> right? <laughs> but when we start decomposing all these things, think about an application that it's a monolith. When we decompose it, it may wind up being 10 microservices, 100 microservices. And so now I need to connect all those microservices together. I need to bandage them, I need to debug it, right? And, and it becomes a, a much more complex environment in, in one sense. And I'll make the argument on the other side, it actually becomes a more simplistic environment. That's why I said this kind of talks to the complexity, right? The, the next piece about this is how, how are we going to do this stuff? I need to secure, authenticate, need to do the discovery, the DNS piece, monitor debug, scale up, scale down, deploy. I need load balancing, I need logs across all these things. And so, you know, the first thing that you can do, and I, I make one of you, I can start embedding some of these patterns into the code itself. Right. So, for example, in Go Micro, there's a, a microservice framework called Go Micro. And that's where circuit breakers, you know, timeouts, all the other components actually go into it. Right. But the problem is there's like five different microservice frameworks for Go and then multiply that across the number of languages you have. And each one is managed internally to the team that's actually doing that. Right, so that becomes very complex very quickly, right? And then you have the other side of it is I can start integrating these things into my DevOps framework, right? So I'm going to front end it with Nginx. Nginx is to perform my load balancing. I'm going to have Nginx implement the circuit breaker functionality, right? But that's going to be siloed per team, per framework that you actually do, right? And then just because I put it in, I think Bash is horrible. Uh, we still have some out there, right? You know, the worst thing is you, you can put it in Bash, but... The point of it is, this doesn't give you any way to really manage it. It creates a very complex system that's extremely difficult to manage because you don't have one place where you can actually go and manage these pieces to it. So the whole point about service meshes is, is, is that's what they did, right? So I just kind of put it in outsource it to a service mesh. And this is the thing that actually manages all that stuff. And as we go through the stuff, what you see is the stuff I used to put into um, applications I no longer need to put in there. Now, this is a simple example, right? Uh, when you have a, a um, service that's overloaded, right? We go in and we start implementing our back-off strategy. How many application programmers are really good at implementing back-off strategies? And, and the answer is not too many. It's an afterthought, and so they don't do a very good job of it, right? You have to build in the TLS, that all the other components into it. And so the idea is you're outsourcing all that code that manages finding, um, authenticating, securing, all those other pieces of the application now moves to the actual service mesh framework. And I'm using Istio here, although there's a lot of different ones in there. It breaks it up into kind of three big buckets, right? So there's traffic management, there's visibility and diagnostics to it, and then there's security that goes into it. So that's effectively what a service mesh is, taking all the stuff that coordinates managing, deploying, and operating microservices, and it moves the core functionality into the mesh itself. The business logic stays inside of the microservicer function, right? And then I just put this out there that there's lots of these different things. There's more. I'm, I'm using Istio as I get through these examples. Um, but service meshes don't equal Kubernetes. Most of the service meshes existed pre-Kubernetes. Um, so why Istio was very tied into Kubernetes, most of the concepts I talk about basically play outside of Kubernetes ecosystems as well. Um, so this is an example of those, right? And so traffic routing, kind of what capabilities does service mesh provide in that, right? And so the first one I'll give examples of that is, is request routing. And I'll go through examples, which is I want the ability to route um, dynamically route requests to multiple versions of a service. I'm moving version one to version two. I want to decide how I want to do that. 
Um, I, I might want to do traffic shifting. I want, want to migrate part of it um, using TCP or HTTP, send 10% to the new service, send 90% to the old service. I might want to be able to mirror it, uh, which means I want to have a, a, a hot, I want to have a, a new system and I want to have an old system. I want them both to receive the same traffic into it. Um, I want, want to apply egress control. So I'm going to origin X, Y, and Z. I know that it's a weak origin. And so I want a connection pool no larger than 10 connections where I know I'm going to overwhelm it. Um, I want to test application resilience. I want to inject faults into the system and see how the application responds to it. Uh, managing just request timeouts. Um, and I got examples from most of these things. Um, load balancing inside of regions, zones, and subzones. <coughs> Yeah, you know, the traffic shifting is just HTTP, circuit breaker paradigms, and then basically, how do I control traffic coming into my service mesh? Um, and I'll walk through the various examples. These are the things that go into basically the traffic routing site. So when you ask, like, why not just DNS? You can see these are attempting to solve operational problems um, and doing it in unified fashion. So just simple examples. Um, in the case of Istio and most of these things, they start with some notion of a virtual service. So this is something that actually wraps the microservice that's coming in. And so at the top level, you have like the host, and these are the APIs, external clients are coming into. So api.pagrid.io or .com, right? You have the request routing side, right? Which is I can set up match rules, um, and he's got very complex. And then based on those match rules, in this case, I have one where if I have a, a um, you know, something that matches a, a end user with test in it, Right, your token of some mysterious value, it's going to route it to basically version two of this, right? Where if there's no match in there, the default route is going to send it back to version one. So this is kind of the first capability of deciding how you want to route your traffic. And these things can be very complex. And think the second piece in here is you'll see the notion of, of subsets. And so I, I use something in here like token generator, but that V1 and V2 can be sets of microservices that are grouped together. So if I have an authentication service that consists of five microservices, you know, that might be version one might be subset V1 and version two maybe subset V2, right? So this is kind of routing capabilities inside of a microservice, right? This is an example of how, yep. I was gonna say that's, the, that's what I usually think of as the reverse proxy functionality. Um, more fine grain though, usually, right? Yeah, that's true. Right, and, and so we don't normally get this kind of, so in a reverse proxy, you could do, you could set up a good chunk of this stuff in Nginx, right? And try and do these things into it. But this is just two examples of traffic shifting, right? So the one on the left is TCP, the one on the right is HTTP. And you can basically see I want 80% to go to V1, 20% to go to V2. And, and I might have a strategy that says over a period of a day, I wanna you know, migrate that from 5% up to 100% as I kind of do gradual rollings out into these things, right? Uh, yeah, this is an example of setting up traffic mirroring, right, kind of stuff. So I want to basically take V1 and I want to mirror it to V2, right? And then you can obviously set up mirror percentage. Maybe I want to send only 10% because I don't have enough resources in, in my kind of test pool to take 100% of traffic. So it's much more likely you'd say 10% or 5%. Um, or some component into this. So this is allowing you to test another application at some level of scale, or just to perform A-B testing, right? I, I wanna understand, you know, what are the different performance characteristics in, in V1 versus V2 and do it. Um, you know, I have ingress and egress controls. <clears throat> so, you know, this is gonna control things like I have an unsecure request coming in and I wanna upgrade it to HTTPS. 
um, I can basically pass fine grain traffic policies to um, other components inside of the service mesh or pass them to external components. Um, I can apply ACLs to it. I can basically force um, TLS authentication. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, and then, but mostly in these things, it's about controlling connection pools, timeouts, circuit breakers. It's what are the characteristics of how I determine uh, an error into it. And I didn't put, I could put more into this stuff, but there's another side to this, which is the ingress side coming into it. And the biggest difference between the egress side and the ingress side is I may enforce PLS between the origin I'm, I'm reaching, I'm trying to connect to on the egress side. But on the ingress side, you also have the option of performing client authentication because now we assume someone is coming in um, that is uh, external to the microservice itself. And it may be that I need to perform an OAuth authentication to it. Once again, that's something I normally would have written inside of my application. I can now basically offload to the service mesh and say, this is my authentication scheme. Read the applications inside of this mesh and I'm gonna basically offload that to you. And obviously I can scope that by domain, right? So I could have a certain class that use authentication version one and a certain class that use a different form of authentication to come into it. I just went through this quickly because I don't think we need a lot of time to get into this stuff. Right, circuit breakers, right? What are my back off policies, right? I can define all those as part of these components into it. Um, and then basically, you know, fault injection, right? Which really goes around a couple of things. I can mimic network latency into it and I can mimic the ports, right? So I wanna introduce, uh, uh, you know, it took five seconds to respond, 10 seconds, one second to respond into it. Um, and then I want some percentage of my traffic to just result in a failure into it. So it's not like we're injecting, um, you know, load into the thing, additional load into the service as much as we're mimicking overloaded services or services downstream that are basically not performing correctly. Okay, and, and this is basically the failover logic between these pieces. And so let's assume I've got things deployed in availability zone one, availability zone two, and I've got one in US uh, West one and US West two inside of Amazon. Um, the mesh can span the cluster, can manage multiple clusters, and it can basically then set up failover policies across those components. So if you know, US West 1 is becoming unavailable, I can actually now start shifting traffic to US West 2. Um, so it's a little bit broader in terms of, of managing the mesh in a broader scope. Um, so that's all it really is for traffic routing into it. The second piece of this is visualization and diagnostics. Right, and so inside of this, there's control plane monitoring for it. And so um, on this side, I have what are all the kind of core services? So in Istio now, it used to be if you read the older ones, you would see Pilot, Gallery, Citadel, and Mixer. Those are all now just combined into Istio D. Um, so they simplified it down. And basically it is measuring all the telemetry data around the actual control plane itself. Right, and then the second piece is beyond the control plane, which is basically the Citadel pilot and these pieces to it, I've got the actual proxy traffic. Um, so there's a pretty advanced set of metrics to allow you to manage the control plane in and out of it, right? And then there is service level metrics, which are actually based on top of those. Um, and so by default, you're gonna get um, these things exported into Prometheus, although there's a number of metrics backends you can put it into. And then there's a default set of dashboards that allow you to actually monitor what's going on in that. Um, and then the last piece under this um, should be this piece into it. So distributed tracing is a relatively simplistic concept where when something um, enters the service mesh, I can tag it in such a way as it passes through the service mesh 
I can track each of the paths it went through. So you can imagine if my service mesh becomes very complex and I've got a problem, it becomes very difficult to try and figure out um, where that problem entailed to. So basically this is kind of a, a hop by hop um, uh, uh, diagnostic capability. It's actually built into the service mesh. So from the time it enters the mesh to the time it leaves the mesh uh, or the response is going back so you can track each of the pieces that go through these components. Uh, so this is distributed tracing piece. And there's a number of distributed tracing backends you can figure in. I think the default is Jaeger um, that pops into these things, but this is how do I get visibility into it, right? And then the last piece into this is how do I secure these things? And uh, Istio is a bit more aggressive than other pieces into it uh, in terms of the things that actually secure in it. And I'm just gonna go, um, you know, down what are the major components of this, right? So the idea in any of these things is I am authenticating really a couple of different things. I'm authenticating um, servers that exist in side of these things into it. So I may have server A and server B. You know, each of those things is going to be identified by an X509 certificate and they basically can perform mutual, uh, mutual TLS authentication so that we can verify each one of these things is who they say they are. Um, the function of generating those um, certificates is automated, and that's what the Sentinel uh, component of DSDOD did into it. And then I'm also authenticating the workloads, and I can then create policies um, around those workloads to allow me to say that only these workloads are allowed to execute on top of the servers inside of it. Uh, but this is kind of the component of zero trust, where you trust no one, you authenticate the server is who it says it is, you authenticate the workload is what it said it is, and then I can apply authorization policies to that that would allow me to specify who can access not only uh, what workloads, but what data on those workloads to it. And as I said, there's also that authentication in that. So it's basically uh, peers between each other in the mesh, and then it's requests for end users coming into the mesh itself. One second. Uh, wow. So the authentication for the app at runtime that's a, is that app specific or is that part of the control plane? It is part of the control plane. Um, okay. and it, it, however, when you configure it up, um, you can make it, that's why I tried to make earlier is I may have some set of applications that require uh, tie back to a, a single sign-on server inside of the enterprise and they have right. some class of applications that require OAuth. Yeah. So I can create different authentication policies. And when I create a service, I associate that service with an authentication policy. But actually the way I really do it is I create an ingress <laughs> that has that authentication policy. And then when I create a service, I assign that ingress to that service. Okay. Likewise, I can assign an egress to that service as well. Um, so you can have you know, a mix of different authentication policies as part of it. Um, but as part of defining the ingress in the service and the egress, you specify what those policies are. A, a different way to look at it is the peer-to-peer the, the -peer authentication, uh, the, the telematic part is uh, level, three, four, level three or level four. And then the ingress authentication, uh, like the end user part, that's typically where you do level seven authentication with identity providers, et cetera. Yeah. I, I, I this is this could have been like twenty pages on itself. I just tried to keep a really high level simple yes, to it. This is perfect. Thank you. Okay, and then the last piece is that as I said, hey, there are tools out there. Um, so they, um, you know, talk about like solo I/O and that kind of stuff. So you'll see like Kali is one of the things they actually do. So since you've kind of got a common system now, 
I can use tools like Colleague, um, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, to actually manage those components. So, so I can basically get an idea of where they're at from a health perspective. I can basically get a view mm. of what my request routing actually looks like. And there's a whole bunch of other things you can actually do with this, but I just threw it out there to let you know that it, it's not all nicely done with the YAML files. Um, because it's kind of standardized now, I can actually build user interfaces on top of these pieces. Um, I think that's all I put in there. That's like my, my 15 minute overview of what service meshes are. That's awesome, thank you. The, 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 there's a couple of things uh, or, or notes that I want to make, but uh, sorry, Simon, I, I think I talked to you. I was or, just or was saying it? thank you. Yeah. Oh, was anyone else talking? I, I said, I was saying, I was mirroring uh, Simon. That, that's okay. really helpful. All right. Yeah, so a uh, couple of notes from, from my end. Like, uh, yeah, so, so uh, slides were great. Um, what I want to emphasize that, like in terms of bang for your bug, um, like I, I would reorder the, the, the features. Like for example, MTLS is, is something that basically you, be, you don't even need to configure it. You, you get it for free for running the service mesh. And it, it, it gives you automatic part-to-part uh, -part traffic encryption. Like in, in most cases, like, in, like with Istio, uh, you get sidecar injection. So you don't even need to worry about modifying your deployments. You, you just get it for free there. Uh, one thing that has not been mentioned uh, explicitly, uh, although John, you, you did mention that uh, a lot of these service meshes predated uh, um, Kubernetes. Okay. Uh, and one of the, the, the advantages of service meshes in that regard is that they make it really easy to federate traffic across clusters or between clusters and non-clusters. Uh, because again, you, you, can, you can run the, the non-Kubernetes components, for example, of console uh, and integrate it with your console connect service mesh very, very easily. Um, Istio, uh, Linkerd, et cetera, they, they also have features for uh, cluster to cluster federation. So um, it, they, they do bridge that gap that Kubernetes has, uh, at least to some degree in terms of geographic distribution. Yeah, I'd say that the, the federation, although I don't think Istio doesn't actually do a great job itself. There are utilities for Istio to do federation. Um, but in general, what I'd say is that the, the service nest federation is probably a generation ahead of, of Kubernetes federation. Hmm. It, it's much more advanced as a service mesh and much cleaner than it is in trying to do Kubernetes federation, which mostly doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and it makes sense that they, that, I mean, they have to, the technology that are in place uh, pre Kubernetes, uh, so that, that, that just the, the lift and shift of, essentially. Yeah, so it is a more open framework because of its, its um, genesis, right? It didn't mm -hmm. presume only Kubernetes, which I think mm -hmm. is kind of the core to your point in it. But I think on the complexity side, Rob, um, you know, when he talks about, for example, pod to pod encryption, right? Um, if you were doing that in your, um, uh, you know, whatever your DevOps framework were, you know, the most common way that we, we, we set up some sort of a tunnel, you know, to, to add that encryption right. and we add it into the framework and we probably, you know, another application needs it. So there's things we had to go do to kind of ensure encryption between pods, right? When, when we're basically doing this in a, a DevOps framework, right? And, and the odds are no two teams 
necessarily do that the same. Um, and so one of the things I think while, while Istio itself can be viewed as a, another layer of complexity, I think what it actually does is, is remove complexity of having fragmented ways of managing service meshes into a standardized way of managing microservices that's actually very rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and again, like going back to, to, to Rob's discussion, uh, uh, a couple of sessions back about uh, okay. the complex, like complexity. Uh, yes, it, it, as you said, like it, it, it adds another layer. So in that sense, it, it adds complexity, but it removes the configuration complexity. That's a one button, uh, one, one click install now. I guess the challenge with micro, I mean, microservices, one of the benefits here is that you've reduced the team footprint for building a service. It's always been the part of the, 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 the benefit that I've seen is, is the advertised, you know, this is why part of the reason to do it. Um, but then the, the services themselves have interdependencies for it. And it seems like what we've done with Istio is we've made it more, does it improve visibility or is it, you know, allow you to decouple those services better? How would you describe that? Well, I'd say, well, let's take there's two questions into it, right? I, I think that, um, you know, in, embedded inside of Istio or most of these things is service discovery, right? And so, you mm. know, just like you would use etcd inside of Kubernetes to discover service, you know, Istio is going to actually literally import um, from Kubernetes the, the services and then add to it any services that were not in the Kubernetes engine. The service discovery is still the core mechanism for finding, uh, connecting um, components inside of the graph. What I would have said for visibility, though, is you know normally that's something you have to go add into your application. How are you going to do that? And in this case, the visibility kind of comes for free. Yeah, uh, and 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 you, uh, as as you also mentioned, like uh, the, mm. the, the the tracing features, they, they give you visibility, which is really difficult to do in your application. Uh, yeah, like so you, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just gonna say like that, like trade like seeing uh, seeing that the the actions of your application within the application is easy, uh, seeing the interactions of your application with the rest of your ecosystem has been historically difficult and, and issue makes it easier. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not a silver bullet, but it, it definitely improves the, the landscape a lot. Yeah, so when I built like um, the, the, the first app, we did the CDN for Ericsson, right? What we would do is when a um, request came into the CDN, we would generate a unique transaction ID and then we'd carry that in HTTP headers across the entire backbone through all of our weird request routing stuff, um, and then eventually back to the origin itself. Um, and then all that had to get um, consumed into a elastic database, and then you could graph it out with Kibana, right? And so there's a bunch of things that kind of happened in there that I had to go build. First, I had to create the notion of a transaction ID, and I had to find a way of actually collecting it and then visualizing it um, into the system. So if I had used the service mesh, I wouldn't have had to do any of that. Right. Yeah. The, the second component of that is, you know, we had our own internal request routing. Right. And, and that request routing, in this case, we use it as an example of version one versus version two. Right. But it could have been a locality based uh, component into it. I want to find the, the 
uh, route that takes me to the ingest path that is closest to the origin, right? And once I get to that origin, I, I need now to create an egress policy, which is I'm going to go to, you know, some, you know, say GoDaddy hosted website, which I know is just broken, right? And if I send more than two connections to it, I'm going to overwhelm. I'm not going to be able to get any data off of that. So I could have implemented all that with egress policies, right? So I can implement internal routing policies. I can implement egress, ingress policies. And I can implement egress policies and all use a standardized framework as opposed to in the past, they had to write all that code. I'm, I'm thinking about some of what you described made me think of load balancer rules, but this yeah. is, right? And, and, and they were super limited and they weren't particularly responsive for the type of multi-service traffic that we're talking about right now. They could get you to the front, but they, right? You were actually describing tracing a transaction across multiple services from that perspective. Yeah, And multiple versions of the services also. Well, you could do multiple versions or, or, or multiple components to it. And there is load balancing components inside of SDO as well. Mm -hmm. uh, which may not be um, sufficient. In fact, they wouldn't have been for a CDN. They would not have been sufficient. Um, but I think that is a, a, pretty, a pretty rudimentary level of load balancing, you know, whether it's red rob, red rob or some other pieces to, where, where you're not going to get addressed into this um, is things that happen in unpredictable volumes, right? So you, you imagine, I always use, you know, the... the um, you know, actually, Britney Spears was always the one that drove more traffic to Michael Jackson's brain. Uh, but, you know, some new thing happens with Britney Spears and all of a sudden some website blows up. And where I may have had, you know, 10 servers allocated to serving that content, all of a sudden they need 100. Right. And, right. and that may be regionally specific. Right. So that kind of like really um, uh, real time awareness of, of scaling up. And, and really not scaling up inside of a cluster, but scaling up globally, um, that's not anything you're going to find inside of Istio or service meshes. That's still something you need to go solve on your own. Um, and then the overhead, and I took it back. I was trying to do a little bit of research oh. yesterday on this. It, it used to be, why not do it this way? And so it used to be that Envoy, which is the proxy in this, wasn't very efficient. Um, but the latest numbers mm -hmm. I saw yesterday, they, they clearly done some work on it. So Envoy used to take, 30% um, right off the top of your, your performance. <clears throat> and then the mutual authentication that you did um, in the workload certification took another third. So you went from 900 transactions per second yeah. to 300. <clears throat> Those seem to have actually now gone down towards maybe taking 15, 20% overhead to do that, okay. you know, which is much, much more acceptable than it used to be. Um, yes, yeah, so it definitely made some improvements on that side of things. I'm glad you you brought up brought it up actually because the, the, I mean that is the, the dark side of service meshes is that it, it's just it, like if you if you need to do low latency traffic um, then a service mesh is likely not the right thing for you. Maybe I mean, but if you have if you have certain microservices that are, are truly low latency, you you can bypass the ingress and the egress. You just specify that in your policy. Yeah, yeah. But again, like hmm. you're bypassing the the the, the service mesh at that point. So you, you, latency, you can still use the, the rest of the cluster. Is the latency issue because you have to 
pop up into some uh, instance which is going to check out whether or not you have access. Is that the issue? No. Um, well, the issue is your proxying, right? And so proxying has your your, your proxying and your encrypting, if it wasn't already encrypted. Um, and to, so think of the request flow as a, a request comes in to your ingress or your ingress entity, cluster, sorry. And if you've got an authentication policy there, and, and by default, you don't, right? But what you're going through your first proxy on this hop, and then that proxy is not gonna send you to um, you know, let's assume it routes you directly to um, your microservice, right? So now I'm going through a second proxy. If that Microsoft needs, if that microservice needs access or another microservice, I'm going through another proxy, right? Because in this case, Envoy is injected as a sidecar into each one of those microservices. So I'm taking the overhead of traversing a proxy. And if the proxy is not, not well written, it can be relatively costly. So think of each proxy, a well written proxy is going to cost you five milliseconds, right? So I added five, 10, 15 on. And if my, my um, budget for latency is 10 milliseconds, I just, I just broke it, right? Um, so it's the proxying that adds the overhead and then deciding how much authentication you want between those peers in the network can add additional overhead into it. Um, and, and so in some cases that overhead, um, you know, would break the latency budget. I don't think many. Um, and then under load, you know, in, in most of the things I've seen in terms of real, <clears throat> you know, you're maxing a proxy on it. Those, those latencies can creep up anywhere between 50 and 100 milliseconds, right? So, so each point you inject into the path of that adds latency to processing it. And that latency is going to increase as a function of load. Yeah, I mean, that, so one occurs to me that there's an interest. These are actually services running inside of Kubernetes, right? They're not. Exactly. It's in Istio's case, the, they are. The, well, the, the 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 pictures we always show um, show it like as a layer above the microservices, but it's really a microservice inside of the infrastructure. It's inside of the infrastructure itself. It's just an extra, right? It, it basically ingests traffic and then it distributes traffic back to the appropriate pods from that perspective. Yeah, so um, if you do, yeah. if you think of it, yeah, so exactly. So you've got your your ingress is, is a proxy now that, you know, the traffic coming into it is going to go to the ingress proxy and you're going to form whatever authentication you need to do now. Having said that, you don't need to configure an ingress. You, you can just let Kubernetes, um, <clears throat> discovery routes you through that microservice as if nothing else was there, right? So, so you could eliminate the ingress if you don't actually need it. And now there's no additional overhead. But when you get to the pod, right, you, you've got Envoy, which is the proxy running as a sidecar, right? Whoa. And so all of the traffic hmm. in and out of that pod is now going to get proxied through Envoy. Which then needs to know where to send the traffic based on the rules of the service mesh. Correct. Which, which, so you, you have to have something that's maintaining the routing policies for the system as a distributed, as a, it's a basically now a distributed database. This was, I mean, I, Kubernetes required that because it, the, the backup mechanism you described is a single point of entry. So you have like, okay, I'm gonna route traffic into the Kubernetes system and then it knows where the pods are and it's gonna, it's gonna send the traffic to the appropriate 
uh, service. But that, you know, the only way to make back in the day, right? The way, I mean, I don't think it's changed. The way to make that scale is you create multiple ingress controllers, you load balance them. It's not very smart. It's basically using the etcd database to route traffic to the appropriate service. And this is, which is not a, that was always a challenge with, with Kubernetes is, is how you scale that up. It's one of the things that Swarm tried to hide and Cloud Foundry, basically that was the core thing in Cloud Foundry was that router. Um, Guys, I apologize, I have to run, yeah. but I leave the wiser. Thank you. <laughs> Good to talk with you, Simon. Um, I don't know if the ingress was, was I mean, I think you, you've got two different pieces of that on ingress too. Um, so software-based load balancer, right, only goes so far, right? And there's a few right. things you can't do. And I don't think the Kubernetes is uh, any more susceptible to that than basically trying to configure a, a load balancer up external, you know, without Kubernetes. You know, forget Kubernetes altogether. It's what are the limitations of, of software load balancers, right? Um, versus going to hardware load balancers and it, it's latency and capacity. And, and so Kubernetes allows you to integrate um, you know, hardware-based load balancers into it, um, you know, and that's fine for certain applications, but I don't see that as any different. What I would have said in Kubernetes, um, the way I manage, for example, a deployment, so if I don't have Istio, right, um, there's no way in Kubernetes to say, I want to route just a portion of my traffic to the new service, right? I, I have a pretty hard limit of, I want to update one server at a time. I want 10% of my, my cluster to be this or my service to be this or 20 or 50 percent the, the ways i can actually deploy new services in kubernetes is relatively limited right and and it's really not up to the task of meeting most production work mode. so i think the request routing is really about giving you a much more fine-grained way of how you can actually roll out services and kubernetes provides right that makes uh, that makes a ton of sense to me it's how i've seen it evolve i guess the question i would would throw back is should, should this have been an integrated thing in Kubernetes since it has data it always struck me all right this is you know I've, I've seen other microservice applications where they put the service mesh concepts first and then the pod the pod management second and Kubernetes sort of flipped that over or am I Simplifying yeah, it too much. I, I think you're you're I think you're mixing two issues to it. I think there is the I think there's an issue of how do I route traffic. So I've got um, a service running. I defined um, I got like a little films microservice I built, and I want to fire up um, three instances of that because I think that's what's required to to manage my workload to it. And I'm running just version one, and all of a sudden it becomes popular, and I need to fire up fifty instances of those. Right, so, so I think of Kubernetes as providing the scale out capabilities for a microservice, okay. right? I, I think of Istio as providing the, the um, version management um, and route optimization between um, different versions of those services and, and or different versions living in different locations. Right, so I may have the same microservice available in two different availability zones or two different regions, and maybe region one is more performant than region two, right? And I want to route it to, to that cluster because I want the lowest latency into it. 
So I think they're, they're just two very different things, right? So, so we used to define this as proximity routing, you know, route me to the closest endpoint um, that's gonna offer this service into it. There's internal routing, which is route me to the best available um, internal endpoint to provide that service into it. And then there's basically scale out, which is how do I scale up and scale down the workload as demand increases or decreases? And I think Kubernetes provides the latter point. I guess the only thing it does, I think that the first two components is what you get with Istio. I, that, which explains why Istio is, is essentially a standalone service. I think it, it's a standalone service. I think they, they just didn't get there. <laughs> it wasn't, I think it's an ordering piece, but it, it, you can think of it that way. Sure, I think the other reason for it to be a standalone service is you may have had a, a lot of organizations that started with Console Connect or they started with, with Linkerd. Um, and so adding them of this service mesh into the Kubernetes cluster wasn't the way they wanted to do it. They, they wanted Kubernetes for the scale out capabilities, but they want to basically use Linkerd because that's what they've been implementing. Right. Right. I just, uh, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, Kubernetes is clearly here to stay, but it's not, none of these platforms are always the, the final solution. Um, and in some ways, I think Kubernetes is establishing patterns that um, as they standardize might be streamlined further. It, it's especially if you think of like, how would I combine serverless and containerized service man management? The service mesh component of, you know, an Istio or a Linkerd actually is the bridge between different platform types. Um, and I could actually manage if services deployed through different different mechanisms without it being so tightly coupled into a uh, Kubernetes set. Yeah, and again, and I think that was kind of um physical classes. I mean the point is yeah, I mean so I can I can basically integrate Greenfield and Brownfield applications together with the service match because it doesn't assume everything is a Kubernetes um, greenfield into it. Uh, so I think that's completely fair. Um, and I think that, um, uh, and I know another point I would have made there, but yeah, I, I think that actually here's the other point I was going to make it <clears throat> because it is, um, because it is agnostic to some extent of the underlying technology, which has advantages and disadvantages to it. You know, the thing we always talk about is, um, operational insights, right? And so how do you drive metrics that could drive you know, automation through AI or ML um, if all my systems, systems are different, right? And, and so what you have to do then is you have to map and you have to basically build other patterns to allow you to say, this is what this means in Istio, this is what this means in Linkerd, this is what it means in Swarm or Kubernetes and that stuff. So I think normalizing this out also allows us to apply or create more operational intelligence to how we automate the service. That makes sense to me. The interface, the networking mesh in front of the services is actually what, and your ability to, to migrate it, control it, monitor it, and collect data provides, that's a normalized surface, yep. regardless of the controls, the controls under, under the covers. And then, so, right, that's, sorry, Rocky, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you know, talking here about Istio and Kubernetes, and it's not quite 
you know, with Kubernetes is standardizing. Uh, we're at the five-year point on Kubernetes. It's time for uh, OpenStack 3.0, since Kubernetes was OpenStack 2.0. <laughs> and Istio is helping to drive that. But uh, I, I can see where if we were doing this better with, with microservice discovery in libraries, we could have libraries of microservices and we could do really low code string together microservices uh, that are essentially templates and yeah. use Istio to just create whatever you need. Uh, and so applications are just stringing together libraries of microservices instead of having to write a new microservice, a new set of microservices every time. Yeah, let me, um, let me see if I can find something here really quick. Um, uh, let me share again real quick here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so the way we would have said that is in, in uh, let me just make it big here real quick. Um, not that I agree with you or anything like that, right? But um, yeah, so <laughs> to go with the, the operational framework and these things, right? I, I just go in the, the, in the development world, we have best practices we call design patterns, right? Those are things that implement microservices. This is an example of one referred to as a trilateral pattern that goes into it, right? Um, but today I can go read about that in the book, but I don't have what you described as a template where I can basically grab it and have my application logic into it, right? Yep. And so we kind of say, you know what, I want blueprints. I want to take all that best practice code and implement it as blueprints, right? But blueprints shouldn't be, you know, one-offs themselves, right? There's lots of pieces that make these things up, right? And so let's basically create those as blocks of code, like digital Legos, and allow me to go build a new microservice into it. Right, and then all of the, the um, service mesh and other components to it. So the idea is get them down to just writing the business logic, right? Or, or whatever they're trying to do, the problem yep. logic into it. Um, so that's exactly what we're working on is basically creating um, blueprints that encapsulate the best practices for microservices or functions, you know, creating a set of, of digital building blocks that allow you to create new applications very quickly into it. Um, and the other thing we do in this is we apply the same syntax. So the way we have our, our what do we want to call it, our, our um, definitional language into that stuff applies to basically the, the service deployment as well as the application itself. So if I want to have small, leading, and large deployments, I can actually define the entire software development lifecycle as a set of blocks and then associate a blueprint for a deployment strategy with a, a blueprint for a microservice and deploy to both of them, right? So, you know, the idea is to basically kind of, you know, take those things that we know work and accelerate them um, by basically creating common building blocks that can actually be put together very flexibly. So, yeah. And, yeah. And you could actually push that all the way back to the uh, business logic where, our, where there are sets of business logic that just need parameters that people uh, change, so. Yeah, um, we refer to those as definitions. So ah, cool. you add a, add a definition to a, a blueprint and it generates your code for you. Cool, low code. <laughs> well, yes and no. I, I don't like getting thrown into the low code bucket, 
because you know part of the trick to this is I, I said you always threw the 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 deployment part over the wall to the DevOps team. The DevOps team um, talked a different language. One was French and one was Spanish, right? And so we wanted to unify the language so that everyone defined things in the same terms. And I could express my infrastructure in the same terms I expressed my software into it. Um, so we tried to unify those two things and we brought it together. Um, and what I would have said is very different than that. So for example, I was talking to a testing company last week um, and they're trying to basically sassify a hardware-based test solution into it. Um, and, and so in their case, for example, if I need to go um, generate 100,000 probes of different classes into it. Right? I, I know that there is a, a, a pattern for um, doing that. Like in Go, we would use worker pools or some advanced version of that to do that. Uh, but the portion of the code they need to write is maybe the HTTP or the DNS or whatever probe they need to go execute into these things. Right. All it does is take, you know, think of it as, as someone referred to this, actually W referred to this as architecture as a service, where I can go create and architect hmm. these types of blueprints, right? And then what the business people can do is add to it the piece that they need to add. In this case, it was like, go do an HTTP test, an HTTPS test, do DNS queries. Um, do other components to it. And so low code implies I can do everything from a UI and kind of drive this down into creating if then else flow controls. Uh, where, where we say, no, 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 no. This, this is going to cover the entire software development life cycle. Right. right. And so I need to be able to just create the core of the piece that gets reused across maybe all these different testing organizations into it. And then when I go and improve it, by the way, because I added in management APIs, more metrics APIs, I adopted different metrics APIs into it. You know, they can just reprocess the, the, the blueprint and basically have an updated version of the code kind of skipping the retrofactor. Right. right. Well, and, and the key really is, is that low code actually has that, it's that Spanish French thing again, because my idea of low code is you write little bits of code, not a lot. And it's pretty templatized, sort of like YAML, but but smaller. And so, yeah, the definition of low code is different from what in the in the commercial world is different from what you or I would consider low code during a development cycle. Also, in some ways, I think it's more along the lines of British versus English on some of this stuff. Pound uh, versus foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so I mean, anyway, I, I totally agree. That's what we've been kind of, yeah, so. Cool. Describe the SPO pieces. That's one piece of how do I want to go deploy these things and, and do it in a, a normalized format? Because it, um, I, you know, I need to be able to automate the operations of these things. And if it's, you know, basically snowflakes, I can't do it, but we're, we're well past time. Yeah, yep. I, I now see why you care so much about the service mesh. So thank you. Wow. Makes was, life a lot amazing. easier if you just follow a few rules. <laughs> no, well, they're hugely powerful. I, yep, it's it's actually the the yeah. I, we could keep yeah. going. I, <laughs> this is really helpful. And thank you all. The, John, the interesting thing the, is, is that the yeah. Wi-Fi meshes, in some ways, are very similar mm -hmm. because of the overhead. You can't get the high throughput in the high in the low latency but it's enough for general purpose just don't do gaming on a mesh <laughs> well you, you can do gaming just don't use the ingress and egress i mean there's like all things like right. in, in openstack right 
you could use the virtual network or you just bypass it and go straight to the physical network. So yeah. I was great performance, we bypassed it. We yep. don't, I don't need to go through vSwitch. Yep. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good, good example. <laughs> well, thank you very much. This was extremely useful. Good. Great. Thank you. All right, guys. I'll catch you next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on another Cloud 2030 DevOps Lunch and Learn. Um, as always, uh, my head gets stuffed full of amazing content. Uh, and this one was really uh, remarkable for learning about Service Mesh. And as uh, always, talking a little bit about how the complexity of the system works and how we manage it and, and what it becomes. This was a really important installment in the technical components on how we make systems that survive complex environments. I hope you'll tune in to more Cloud 2030 uh, infrastructure discussions at the2030.cloud. Come in and uh, bring something to share if you want, or just come and enjoy uh, some amazing conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.